0: Hi hi hi! Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Buino. How are you today? Seriously, how you doing? I'm feeling pretty good because the sun is shining. I happen to have a new dog. Yes, I, maybe I should post pictures on the Instagram to show you my new dog. She's a sweetie. Anyway, I'm doing all right. Hope that you're doing okay today. Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm really, really excited to share today's guest with you. But first, let me tell you a couple of announcements. Just want to tell you one final time before you can sign up. I've got a couple of speaking gigs coming up and they are virtual. So no matter where you are, you might be able to access them. On June 3rd, I will be talking about trauma and substance abuse for the Illinois Higher Education Center. And then on June 16th for the New Hampshire Alcohol and Drug Abuse Counselors Association, I will be talking about none other than being a wounded healer in these crazy times. So if you are somebody who needs CEUs or you're a therapist or you're just super interested in these topics, you can find the websites to register for these events. You can find them in the show notes. Also have them on my website or you could just Google it. I bet you could find it that way too. So let me tell you about today's guest, Tim Desmond. I actually first found his work via the Brene Brown Road. Uh, I was doing her work, became introduced to Kristen Neff's work on self compassion, and then somehow stumbled upon Tim's work and his book, Self Compassion and Psychotherapy. And there was something about his work that just felt like it resonated on a really deep level. And he also explained how to use practices with clients in a way that just felt so accessible. And it really transformed the way that I I started explaining some of these concepts to clients and has made a huge difference in my work, both personally and professionally. And most recently, he released a book called How to Stay Human in a Fucked Up World. I saw that title and I was like, we need to have a fucking conversation. So and let me tell you a little bit more about Tim. So he is a psychotherapist, author, distinguished faculty scholar at Antioch University, New England, and a student of Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh. He's also the co-founder of the Morning Sun Mindfulness Center. He lives in Allstead, New Hampshire, and teaches mindfulness and self-compassion practices to audiences around the world. His publications include Self-Compassion and Psychotherapy, The Self-Compassion Skills Workbook, and How to Stay Human in a Fucked-Up World. So let's figure out how to stay human in a fucked-up world. Please enjoy my conversation with Tim Desmond. Hello, Tim. Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer.
1: Uh, It's great to be here.
0: (laughs) Well, how are you? That's the question you were going to answer, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, I was just saying, yeah, no, it's good to be here and I'm doing all right. Yeah, we're in the middle of our coronavirus craziness right now and
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: yeah, kind of adapting as best we can to the kind of new situation in the world.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm especially excited to have this conversation with you at this time. I had ordered your book. Your latest book is called How to Stay Human in a Fucked Up World and I ordered it before all this happened, and then as soon as this all went down, I was like, oh, I'm so glad I have this. <laughs> and I'm really excited to talk to you in particular because of, of the focus of the book. But before we get to all that, would you share more with people about who you are and what you do?
1: Who I am, that's a, that's a lot to talk about. I, so I live in Alstead, New Hampshire at a place called Morning Sun Mindfulness Center, which is a retreat center that I uh, co-founded uh, several years back that's in the tradition of Thich Nhat Hanh. Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a Buddhist monk and author, he's written books like The Miracle of Mindfulness and Pieces Every Step. I've studied meditation under him for about 20 years now. I was exposed to his teachings when I was in college. And Basically, I had grown up in Boston, son of like a, a single mom who was an alcoholic. We were homeless for a while when I was growing up. By the time I got to college, I had a lot of anger and loneliness and sort of like uh, social isolation. And when I was exposed to Thich Nahan's writings, it was actually in a political science class that was mm. assigned, it was like a peace and world order class and they assigned mm. pieces every step. And what I saw in his teachings was kind of exactly what felt like it was missing from my life. Mm-hmm. Sort of mindfulness and compassion, this ability to sort of do good in the world while also being a source of love and tranquility. It was just like incredibly foreign to me from where I grew up, but also it was just really attractive. It was just like, yeah, that's that's what I have none of, and that's what I really want in my life. And so I spent my twenties kind of going back and forth between spending time in various monasteries with Thich Nhat Hanh, sort of following him around the world as he was teaching and then taking part in various social justice movements, starting with the the WTO movement all the way through organizing or helping to organize the Occupy Wall Street in New York. So kind of going back and forth between those things. I'm also a licensed therapist and right now I'm in the process of starting an organization called Peer Collective. And our mission is try, is basically to try to make mental health support as radically accessible as possible to kind of create a world in which anybody who needs emotional support can just hit a button on their phone and be connected to a highly empathic, compassionate person mm-hmm. whenever they need support in a way that is where cost is never going to be a barrier, where it's like really affordable. So what I'm doing right now is is trying to kind of build that as a, a project. I'm involved with a lot of different things, but yeah. they all kind of come back to wanting to engage with the suffering in the world and kind of do whatever I can to, yeah, to be helpful.
0: What I just heard you share now and also what I was struck by in the book is with you, it started from within. It started with this desire to heal yourself and take care of yourself. And and from that place, then you can expand and and help others.
1: Yeah. Well, it's funny because I, I think that like my initial, so I would say that I have this kind of dual motivations that led to me being attracted to Thich Nhat Hanh's teachings. And one of them is Growing up in Boston, being kind of like a poor or working class kind of family and being in various parts around Boston, but just like in places that were, you know, we were sometimes in really working class neighborhoods, but sometimes we'd be like kind of the poorest neighborhood and like an upper middle class neighborhood. And I really, I feel like I hated capitalism from a really mm. young age. And I think that the that hostility in me was about the cruelty that I saw that the sort of wealthy kids sort of nastiness with which they treated Mm poor kids. Mm -hmm. And like that kind of class tension was always a part of my life. Like, you know, going back to kindergarten, I remember, you know, kids being made fun of for having less money and being one of those kids. And so having that, that type of like deep class tension And kind of wishing that that were different in the world. Mm -hmm. So that kind of motivated me in a direction of social justice, but motivated me in a direction of kind of angry social justice. (laughs) Right, right. And then when I saw Thich Hans writing, it was kind of like a, hey, there's a connection that you're not seeing between the wanting to create a more just world and wanting to be a person who suffers less. Like they're not separate motivations. Right. And that was really what was most appealing for me and what led me to kind of have these kind of dual areas of focus in my life.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm really glad you brought that up because as you were talking about finding Thich Nhat Hanh and why you were interested in it initially, I was thinking some people might be surprised to hear about the combination of Buddhism and activism.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so. Thich Nhat Hanh wasn't the first Buddhist author that I had read, and I've actually really been turned off by some. I've read What the Buddha Taught and like a handful of other books when I was younger, and just found the the sort of transcendence or the kind of disconnection from problems in the world as kind of a turnoff, right? Like spiritual bypass, sort of. Yeah, exactly, and so. But what I saw in Nhat Han's writing was this person who was like a really committed activist, who was just as committed to cultivating joy and freedom and transforming suffering, and like being able to not just talk about, but really kind of like demonstrate that that those two impulses that I felt in myself that they come from the same place. It's like I want to transform suffering for me and others and society. And it's just sort of like this kind of longing to live in a world where, you know, people have their needs met and and there's like not as much suffering. Mm -hmm.
0: And a thing that I think is sometimes difficult for us humans to grasp in terms of being able to hold both this desire to like recognize the compassion, humanity and suffering in people and also want to create change you know, we're being asked to think in a non dual non binary way. And I feel like our brains are just so not (laughs) so not into that. And it's so it can be really difficult to cultivate that way of thinking.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I think that so often, it kind of seems like the choice is between either my needs will be met, or your needs will be met. Another real uh, important influence in my life has been Marshall Rosenberg, uh, the creator of nonviolent communication. Mm. And one of the things, the ways that he'll f- that he'll frame that is like every single time we're faced with a situation where it's kind of like, well, either I need to take care of me or you because I can't do both. Mm-hmm. What it is, it's not that we wouldn't prefer to meet both people's needs if we could.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And he'll just say like. In that moment, we kind of lack the creativity to sort of imagine a way that I could feel safe and free and you could feel respected or whatever, like whatever need you're trying to, to meet. And it just sort of seems like only one of us. I can only imagine situations in which one of us gets our need met. hmm But what I'll say is like, theoretically, if you could imagine a situation in which both people were getting their needs met, would you prefer that outcome? Mm -hmm. And I feel like that helps us to kind of recognize that it's like, it's not that needs are are ever in opposition. It's that like, I can only imagine scenarios, right? I can only imagine ways of responding to a situation where one of us gets our needs met. And, And even asking the question, it's like, So I might have a voice in my head and I might have a lot of actually training that it's like, you know what, if my needs feel threatened, I need to stop thinking about the other person's needs or I'll never have my own needs met.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So let's say I have that really kind of ingrained in me. When I feel that and notice that, first I need to, to take a little space because if I need to act in in like a habitual mode if I need to sort of react in the moment I'm not going to come up with a new response because that's just impossible we don't we can't respond in a new way if we're having to sort of like act on the spot but if I can take some time take some space and reflect often I can kind of see like yes I really want my own needs to be met and I'm not willing to sacrifice my own safety, my own respect in order to make sure the other person needs needs are met. But can I imagine a situation in which I get all of the safety and respect I could ever want? And this person also is getting their needs met. Can I even imagine that? And if I just sort of sit with that for a moment, then sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes I can imagine an outcome in which that might be possible. And then it's this idea that like, this non duality becomes a lived experience. It's like not theoretical anymore. It's just like, yeah, that would, yes, I would rather do that.
0: Yeah. And I'm thinking about that in a couple different levels on the, on the immediate personal level, I can think of plenty of my clients who do have a relatively safe environment in order to practice that sort of thing. And then I think of my clients who don't have that safety, right. They have somebody in their, in their lives who is not able to meet them. And, and the first thing, honestly, I was thinking about is our fucking president who wouldn't be able to respond in this way. And, and how weary that makes me feeling like I'm in this system where the person who is supposed to protect me and care for me refuses to care for anyone, but himself. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, so I think the thing is like, So what I hear in what you were saying, and let me know if I misunderstand, it's sort of like a, okay, so how am I supposed to feel any type of generosity or connection with another person's needs in a situation where it's like, my needs are not being cared for in that moment? The one thing that's kind of like this underlying, it's like, well, it's either that kind of intrinsically, I'd like to care about this other person's needs, but I'm not really f- sure if I can, or it might feel sort of extra, like extrinsic. it might feel sort of like a social pressure. like people say I should care about this other person, but I don't really mm-hmm. see a way to do it either way, the first question is sort of like, why do I want to care about this other person? Yeah, because I think that if it is like I'm trying to make other people happy or I'm trying to like. Kind of be a good person according to someone else's measure, that's not going to lead to acting with a lot of integrity. Like I'm not going to be happy with whatever I do. For me, whenever we're sort of like engaging in some type of growth, it's got to come from a clarity of motivation, right? Like uh, when I first started getting involved in meditation, I I was really attracted to it. I feel like about a year or two into really immersing myself, I had this insight and I realized that one thing that was motivating me was I felt like, well, if I could become a peaceful and enlightened enough person, (laughs) everyone would love me and no Uh one would be mean anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And it was sort of like this idea of like somehow if I could, if I could just be good enough, Mm -hmm. no one would be mean to me ever again. Mm. And then when I, when I recognized that that was like part of what was driving me to want to grow, to want to develop, it's just like, well, that's fucking not going to happen. Right. Right. You know what I mean? It's like, people are going to be like, there's never been a person alive in history. There aren't even stories. Right. Really. Even like our myths. Right. Like the, the best people we can imagine have enemies. Like, you know, e- even like mythological figures. So this this idea is like, that's just not how the world is. So faced with the existential reality of like, sometimes people are going to be mean to me, no matter what I am or what I do. Sometimes people are going to criticize me or like, just, you know, whatever, like not approve of me. Like what motivates me? Mm hmm. Because it's like, if I can let go of that kind of pressure motivation of like, I have to, or I'm supposed to, and I can actually connect with some intrinsic motivation to have a broader worldview, or to have a more kind of like encompassing heart, then it's like, okay, so now it's because I want that. Right? And if I can get to a place where I want that, well, first, then it becomes actually possible. And then we get to a place of like, okay, so th- there's a part of me that's like, maybe it would come back to, I see that the amount of animosity I hold toward the president is harming me.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: It's injuring me. Right. And I don't want to feel the weight of it. Mm-hmm. Right. So mm-hmm. okay, like, now that's, that's an intrinsic motivation. So how do I let go of that? Well the first thing that that I need to do is I need to see that that animosity itself is a beautiful life-serving response. Mhm mhm that that animosity in me is made out of compassion. Mm-hmm. It's like compassion is the substance that it's made out of because what what that animosity toward the president in me is saying if you look deeper into it is, I wish, it's a wish, right? It's a wish to be in a world in which people cared about each other. It's a wish to be in the world in in which people's needs were met. And if I can see that that's the nature of my animosity toward this person, then the next step is liking that about me. Mm -hmm. I'm glad that when I see like this, like, Callous disregard for human life. I'm glad that bothers me. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know yeah. what? It's like it's like. Mm-hmm. W- would I rather just sort of grin and feel like feel fine about it? No that that's not the person I want to be. I want to be a person that when I see the callous disregard for human life, that that bothers me. That that it touches in me a deep wish for a better world. And if I can love that about me, and I can love having that wish, then a lot of other things open up. Mm -hmm. It transforms from my experience is aversion and animosity toward this like enemy. And it transforms it into this wish for the world to be better and and actually like what what i'd say is like right now when i'm sort of teaching people or talking with people about i think the most transformative practice that that i've that i've come across is this ability to see that in all of our responses and reactivity and whatever it is we are all deep down these beautiful animals who wish That they could live in a world in which everyone's needs were met and everyone loved each other. And we all have that wish. And that's not the world we live in.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So we're, we're like this beautiful animal that lives in a world in which everyone suffers sometimes. There's also joy. There's also beauty. But there's no one who's foreign to suffering. Right. Right. So... There's all of these ways in which people are sick, people grow old, people die, people don't have what they need. Like that's the world we live in. But there's this wish, this, this ability to imagine something different. And if I can just be like, that's beautiful, That that's something that makes human beings beautiful, then it doesn't bother me when it gets stimulated. Mm-hmm. It just sort of seems like, yeah, that's what it is to be human.
0: Yeah. There's so much in that that I want to respond to. I yeah. I think what I'm really feeling in this moment is an appreciation for the way that you communicate this material, because it's so easy to just be like, oh, practice self-compassion, uh, do sure. loving kindness, and really miss the the depth of inquiry that you are really asking for people to do. And I just, I've appreciated your work for a long time now, and I just... I love that we're having this conversation and I get to appreciate it in person. Thanks. Cause I I feel there's a very hopeful resonance in, in the way that you talk about this. So just thank you.
1: Yeah. I think like treat yourself with kindness is a great message, but it's not easy. Mm -hmm, And it's certainly mm -hmm. not always transformative. And and sometimes it can deepen that that idea of like, there's a way I should be that's different than how I am. I think like treat yourself with kindness is, it's a wonderful message. But just like for myself and for the people that I work with, if that's all I have to say, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like, well, in my experience, it's like there's a, a subset of people where the first time they hear that, it's like, wow, I can just treat myself with kindness, mm-hmm. and they're just like, you know, life changing, boom, opening, yep, like I'm good now, <laughs> like that's yep. that's that's what I need to do. I need to practice it, but I'm good now. Mm-hmm. And then there's another number of people where you say treat yourself with kindness, and it's just it's more complicated than that.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. And for. My my work learning more about trauma, I'm recognizing that's a developmental trauma response to blame the self instead of sometimes blaming others. And so self-compassion feels threatening and feels dangerous. And you address that in your book in a really lovely way.
1: Yeah, thanks. So so that idea of like be kind to yourself we develop these stories and we develop these meanings. We develop like mm-hmm. one thing that I've been thinking that I've been learning a lot about lately is a sort of new wave of neuroscience, a sort of computational neuroscience. And so it's like these people who are taking artificial intelligence and machine learning and kind of advancing neuroscience in that way. And their perspective, they talk about the brain, or really the mind, as its main function is to build models of our environment mm-hmm. so that we can try to predict how our environment will respond so we can figure out how to meet our needs, yeah right? so it's it's sort of like in the most basic sense, we need to have a model of how our environment works if we want to try to act. In such a way that mm-hmm. we'll meet our needs, and that every time we interact with something new, if we don't have a lot of information about something, we'll create a model that will grossly generalize, like make like extreme generalizations. and for so many of us, when we're when we experience pain or maltreatment. At the hands of people who are supposed to care for us, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: we inevitably create a model of like, what does that mean? What does that mean about the world? And what does that mean about me? And what does that mean about connection? What does that mean about relationships? Yeah. And that deeper model. So it might be something that like, I'm a bad person who deserves to be punished.
0: Mm hmm.
1: Um, Or who doesn't deserve love. Or like, you know, if I were better, I would deserve love. Something like that. But I'm not. Neuroscientists are creating these models where it's like you have a a higher level model that then creates sort of limits on other models that you can generate. So the idea is that, like, if you have a new experience where there's somebody who's, like, really kind and compassionate and attuned to you. Mm -hmm. Well, that's sort of like, hierarchically, that's a lower experience than your primary attachment models. Mm -hmm. You're sort of in this meaning hierarchy. The higher level meaning is, well, we don't actually deserve love. Mm -hmm. And so someone treating us like this, we have like limitations of how we can construe that because it has to fall in within the parameters of the, of the deeper model. So basically it's like, okay, well, this person doesn't really know me. right? They don't yep. really see me.
0: And we hear that from clients all the time, right?
1: Exactly. Or so, so it's some way of construing why this person would treat me differently mm-hmm. that has to line up with this higher level model. So developing self-compassion some of that inevitably means that we need to kind of reconsider, reevaluate these core models of ourselves and our world. And that's one of the reasons why our deep reprocessing work can be so core to developing self-compassion, because we can have a deep model that basically says you don't deserve compassion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And no matter what you try to paper over that, you have something that's, that's basically saying like, yeah, but based on our deepest, most core model of who we are in the world, that's impossible, or that's just not true for us or doesn't apply. Mm-hmm. Luckily, one of the things that I like to talk about when I'm working with clients or teaching meditation is that we don't need to change our past because we can't. Mm hmm. We can change how our past, basically how it's stored in our brains in this mm-hmm. moment.
0: And how we're relating to it.
1: And how we're relating to it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So we, can, we can't change our past, but we can change what it means. And I feel like that's being able to make those sorts of shifts can create this openness to self-compassion.
0: Yeah. Have you heard of NARM, the NeuroAffective Relational Model?
1: I love exposure to, to to different models. So yeah, talk talk about it.
0: Yeah. It's I've been studying it for the past year and Lawrence Heller is the guy that founded it. And he started in somatic experiencing with Peter Levine. And essentially he finds that a lot of models have, have been so pathologizing and very therapist driven. And there's this outcome that we want to achieve. And so it's really hard to describe this model, but what happens as you're receiving it, is essentially the therapist is trying to help you see both sides, essentially, of, of the story. And like you said earlier, that all of our responses are are brilliant survival strategies yeah. and creating space then for compassion to just naturally arise out of that recognition, out of holding both. And it's... Yeah so it's so transformative and personally for me what i've found kind of a good prescription for myself is having this therapy that kind of it organically arises and practicing self-compassion having that as a as a regular routine for myself so that i am doing that rewiring because yeah i i much like you share in your book i'm a person who is kind of wired for that that shame that shame talk so it's been it's it's been revolutionary
1: yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that I love about practice, there's the experience of insight. There's an incredible amount of value in understanding how we work, understanding our obstacles to compassion, understanding how the, the pain in me is sort of blocking me off from allowing compassion in.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then and then even the the depth of understanding of seeing like that that obstacle is really made out of compassion itself. It's trying to keep us safe, exactly. Mm-hmm. But then, kind of on top of that, we go back to our habitual ways of thinking and our habitual ways of relating to the world. Mm-hmm. And the biggest question for me, anytime someone is, you know, is interested in meditation or personal growth or anything like that, it's really like. If your practice comes down to I wanna, I wanna meditate correctly, <laughs> or, I wanna, or, or I wanna do this how you're supposed to do it.
0: Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: You're gonna lose interest. Yeah, yeah. And if we can understand, like, okay, so what is what is motivating you? to want to engage in this way. Like, what are you looking for out of this? Are you looking to just like have more tranquility and peace in your life? Are you looking to sort of have better quality of relationships? Are you you like, what's actually driving you? Because if you know what's driving you, you know, is it like purpose and meaning? If you know what's driving you, then in all of your practice, you come back to remembering that. Because that's what's going to be the engine or the fuel of your practice. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of like, okay, so I want more tranquility in my life and I want better relationships. If that's what's driving me, then anytime I want to practice something, I want to stop and remember, okay, I'm doing this because I want more tranquility and want better quality of relationships. And I want to practice. And so... What's getting in my way of having more tranquility and more better quality of relationships? And for, I don't know, for 99% of us, it's that the suffering in me is triggered either just all the time toward myself or is triggered in when I get sort of close to somebody. Mm -hmm. And I want to heal that so that I can be close or I want to heal that so I can be close with myself. Mm-hmm. And so with this understanding, then we, we can approach our lives in like this fresh and real way as opposed to, well, I, I remember that I had this experience with a therapist that I got into self, like self-compassion practice and that was so good. And now I've just decided that it's good like brushing your teeth. And so I'm just going to do it. In a way that ends up being divorced from like, what actually matters to me. And
0: that's just making me think of, like, I have I have this like, deep, deep ache for everybody to awaken, really, like, that's, (laughs) that's the motivation. And I sometimes find myself getting so frustrated when like I can see a client come in and there's like the surface level of this is what I want in therapy. And like, I want CBT or something bullshit like that. And my desire to skip over all the steps to then give them, give them their enlightenment, give them that awakening and... Just right now, I'm like, okay, like just notice that that's there, <laughs> yeah. And it's it, again, it's coming from this place of compassion and desire and care for everybody to be happy and and have their needs met. But I just as you're talking, I'm just like, we're totally on the same wavelength of this, like yeah. really depth,
1: uh, just depth in this work. So one of the things that I'm doing right now is training a lot of peer counselors, training a lot of people who are kind of getting into supporting other people emotionally and like the core existential part of being there for someone who's suffering is that you want you wish well-being for them and they're not always going to that wish isn't going to come true a lot of the time right one of the things that i like to talk about when i'm training therapists and especially when i'm training peer counselors if you are one of the best therapists in the country, what data shows is that about three out of four of your clients will show some benefit
0: mm-hmm, from being mm-hmm. with you.
1: Not, they're not three out of four having a life-changing experience, right. but that they'll have some type of positive impact, mm-hmm. which means even if you are one of the absolute top therapists in the world one in four clients will have absolutely no benefit from interacting with you. Are you listening, therapist? This is very important. And so, and, and so when I'm talking with peer counselors, I'm just like, so guys, you want to expect maybe like half or at the, at the very least a third of the people that you talk with won't have any noticeable improvement. And it's like, stop hoping that that's going to change. Right. Like that's not going to change. Yeah. So then the question is, am I signing up to do this? Am I signing up to love four people and have two of them deflect the love right back? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's like, do I want to do that? Do I want to keep doing that? Knowing that like, you know, okay, there's a 50-50 chance here. Half the people that I'm going to open my heart to are going to let it in. And the other half are not. If that's roughly what you're batting. Right. And it's like, if you can see the beauty and the value in continuing to do that. Right, right. Then then that's great. Then you're going to be able to continue in this profession. But if if it like stabs you, Every time someone doesn't get everything you want them to get from a session, you're going to end up, you know, completely ruined by those experiences. And so I feel like that thing of just like, okay, so again, it's like the existential reality. I'm a person who wants other people to just be well and happy and free, and they won't always be. Mm
0: hmm. mm -hmm. And if I'm honest with my motivation underneath that and can recognize what it is that triggers me about that and do my own work around it, that's the the best hope we have for surviving. this.
1: Yeah, yeah. And like, yeah, if I can come to some peace. Yeah, with like, that's, you know, the thing is, it's like, the world is how it is can I see that being a human being who wishes that we all had everything we need? Can I see that that actually is what makes me beautiful? And then I wouldn't like to be different than that.
0: Right. Well, how do you feel about the term healer in terms of your work?
1: Yeah. So luckily as a, as a Buddhist, I sort of come from this perspective of Mm non-self, right? Mm -hmm. So all of my thoughts all of my you know like perspectives all of everything i do is a transmission whatever i'm talking about today it's like these are not things that originated with me the language i'm using obviously didn't originate with me right we we are made out of what we call in buddhism non-self elements so what's the healer mhm right The healer is made out of all of these non-self elements. And so whatever healing occurs, it's a transmission Mm
0: -hmm.
1: that is like, I have been fortunate enough in my life to spend time around a a lot of wise people. And I have been unfortunate enough in my life to spend time around a lot of, you know, really suffering, really violent people.
0: Mm Mm-hmm.
1: And whatever impact I have on people, it's these non-self elements. And what I would like to do is transmit more of what I've appreciated, more of what I've liked, and transmit less of the violence and, and pain to others that I interact with. But the, the reality is it's just like I have all of these parts of me, and there's no way to like be some of them and not others. What I yeah what I think about like healer as sort of the the non self elements in me that create healing.
0: Mm-hmm. And whew, that is an area where my work is because yeah. non self so much fear arises in me when I you know when you say that and I like I I understand it on a cognitive level but yeah. there's some some work that I haven't done yet that it that just creates a ton of fear.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah. And I think that that's like, fear is always a wish for safety.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And so right. it's just like, Hey, like, right. there's this wish for safety. Like, how can I, like, I want to honor that wish for safety mm-hmm. and kind of like explore, like, how can safety be possible? And, and the other thing about non sort of like looking in the world and from a non-self perspective, there's a lot of different, worldviews that are valid. The sort of the idea of kind of not self or sort of non-self elements or what Thich Nhat Hanh calls interbeing. It's a worldview that I find really kind of helpful that really helps me feel a deeper sense of connectedness and yeah and sort of less pressure but by no means do I feel like it's the only true view and so it's like right. yes so so I feel like that's like another thing there'll be something that will seem intellectually compelling but how i actually put it into practice is not helpful for me mm-hmm. and so it's like well then maybe that's not the right view for me
0: right right it's interesting though i feel like my journey in understanding buddhist philosophy and buddhist thought is is fairly small but the more that i'm able to intrinsically adopt the belief systems it makes more sense and it makes life easier and so that's why i have this reaction of you know there's a part of me that's like well i i want to i want to get on board with non-self yeah great let's do it you know <laughs> because yeah, then yeah, i will yeah. have less suffering right it's just yeah it's yeah. this endless endless cycle yeah which is the beauty of being human right <laughs> yeah so
1: that's like so looking into that so like sitting with that it's like there's a a drive to sort of suffer less and there's a belief that like, well, if I could understand this thing, then I might suffer less. And there's another part that's like, well, thinking about it this way sounds actually more dangerous. And so then it's kind of just like sitting in that kind of dilemma, like allowing both of those feelings to be true and kind of seeing where that goes. But, but you know, living at a retreat center and, and teaching meditation retreats, I come across a lot of people that kind of want to want to force themselves mm-hmm. to view the world in like along certain lines. Yeah. And like if it's doesn't work for you, it's not like, yeah, it's not any truer than any other worldview.
0: Right. hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one question I think might be interesting to round this out. I think given what we're experiencing right now with the coronavirus one of the things i'm finding for myself and for people i'm working with is the way that we make meaning out of what's happening seems to either bring more distress or bring more comfort and i'm i'm curious for you how are you making meaning out of out what we're going through right now
1: i feel like the biggest like my honest reaction is sort of too soon to tell it's one of my favorite i believe falsely attributed quotes to the it, it's like there's a long story actually trying to fact check it, but the story goes like I feel like as a story it works fine. There's a story that goes like this, where a journalist asked the Dalai Lama, "What do you believe was the impact of the French Revolution in mm. um, you know the 1790s, mm-hmm. 1780s. And he said, "It's too soon to tell." <laughs> hmm. Hmm. And I think I think that that spirit. Hmm. It is important. At least, like my gut reaction is like, what is going to be the impact of this? It's like I don't. Yeah, we'll have to see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think one thing that 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 a seed that's being planted is we can all just decide to live differently than we'd been living. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the the idea that like we can't, the idea that like the reduction in in you know carbon emissions, the reduction in pollution, like this whole idea of like, oh, you know, we could all just stop the problems we're creating in the world. I feel like that could be a potentially really beautiful seed. You know, people who are just like, you know, like, oh, maybe we don't actually all have to pay rent and mortgage. That's like a thing of like, well, you can, it's, it's something that is a promise, but is you know, depending on circumstances, it's it's like it's more negotiable than maybe people could have imagined in the past. And so that the world could be different than it is. I can see that as like a seed. Yeah. And yeah. I think the other thing that I'm really hoping for right now with what I'm doing with peer Collective, my hope for the world is for people to be able to have kind of abundant access to empathy and compassion. And I think that licensed professionals have this expertise and training that is extremely important, but especially with the the average fees that licensed professionals charge and just the number of them that there are, mm-hmm. we can't create a world where people have as much as we need. Mm-hmm. if we're only relying on licensed professionals. Mm-hmm. And so I want to imagine a world in which people who are stay-at-home moms and bartenders and you know FedEx delivery people who are also really good listeners and ha- also have a lot of emotional intelligence can dedicate some of their time to offering emotional support to others and that's what we're doing with peer collective.
0: That's awesome.
1: If you're a therapist, you know, if if people can only afford you know 8 or 12 sessions because of their insurance or whatever then my hope would be that something like peer Colle- collective could supplement what yeah. professionals are doing and so i want to just kind of put that out there as like a as like a, a vision for the world and that's kind of mm-hmm. one thing that we're that we're interested in so if people want to kind of look that up that's a real kind of passion for me right now
0: yeah where do they find more information about that
1: you could just go to peercollective.org p e e r collective.org and you can uh, find us there
0: That's awesome. Anything else that we didn't talk about today that you want to share with listeners?
1: Uh, I really appreciate um, this conversation. It's been really great to connect with you.
0: Yes, me too. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much to Tim for joining us today. To find out more information about Tim Desmond, you can go to our website at www.headhearttherapy.com/podcast. Thanks as always to Andrea Clunder and the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for the album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. Until next time, bye-bye.